It's Saturday, October the 31st, 1908, sometime between 10.15 and 10.30 at night. Walter Steer is in the kitchen of his house in Meadow Road, Fisherton Anger, a suburb of Salisbury. Fisherton is a neighborhood of neat terraced houses occupied by respectable working-class families like the Steers. It's a close-knit community, the kind of place where people leave their back doors open so friends can drop in unannounced. Neighbors are often related. Young married couples living next door to their parents or in-laws. Aunts and uncles just across the road. All the children play on the street together. A compositor by trade, Steer is a practical, down-to-earth man, not easily spooked. But then, he hears a scream coming from one of the neighboring houses. He looks at his wife, Alice, and can tell from her expression that she heard it too. Steer runs through the scullery out the back door. He dashes across the yard into the narrow passageway that cuts between his house and number 38, following the direction of the scream. Seconds later, he's in Meadow Road. He sees a woman coming towards him, Flora Haskell from number 40. She's the mother of young Teddy, the boy who lost his leg a few years ago. Steer registers the look of horror in her eyes. Her face is drawn and ghastly pale in the light of the street lamp opposite. Man around the corner, she blurts out, her words barely coherent. Steer doesn't stop to ask questions. He can tell that something has happened, something bad. Right now, he has to catch this man, an intruder of some kind, before he gets away. Steer doesn't think twice about the danger to himself. Flora Haskell is a widow, with no man about the house to protect her or her lad. It's up to him, as her neighbour, to step in. He races towards the corner of the street, then round into York Road. He spots a couple of men outside the Duke of York and hurries over them, but they've seen nothing. Just then, he hears more screams and runs back into Meadow Road to investigate. When he reaches number 40, the front door is open. Steer bounds upstairs. He looks in the front bedroom and sees that it's empty. Then he goes to the next bedroom. It's pitch dark. He can't see a thing. He goes downstairs for a light. A moment later, now with an oil lantern in his hand, he's back in the bedroom. The beam of the lamp shines down on young Teddy lying in his bed. The boy is unmoving, the expression on his face peaceful, but there's a deep, glistening wound at his throat. His pillows and bedsheets, though neatly arranged, are drenched in blood. The boy's lips are partially open, as if he had just been about to cry out. Steer reaches down to feel Teddy's face. One touch is enough to confirm the boy's dead. He hears someone enter the room behind him. It's another of the neighbors, Mrs. Butt. Here is a horrible affair, Steer says. He goes out onto the landing and calls downstairs. Send for a doctor. His voice rises in urgency as he adds, and the police. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential. 
the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. One of the first officers on the scene is Sergeant William Golding from the local station in Endless Street. Golding takes a statement from Flora. The details are understandably confused, but he does his best to make sense of her highly emotional account. He discovers that she lives in the house together with her only child, Edwin, or Teddy Haskell. She had put Teddy to bed at about quarter to ten and had just locked the back door. According to Flora, she was coming from the kitchen to the passage where the stairs are when she saw a strange man running downstairs. The intruder threw something towards her and then left by the front door into Meadow Road. Golding asks her for a description of this man. Medium height, in his thirties, clean shaven. It was dark at the time, but as far as she could tell, he was dressed in a dark suit and open-necked collarless shirt. He was also wearing a cap and might have been carrying a light overcoat. Sergeant Golding searches the floor and finds the object that the man discarded. It's a kitchen knife, with blood smeared all over it. Beneath it, there is a linear blood stain on the floor, about the same length as the blade. Golding picks the weapon up carefully with some paper and puts it in his pocket. Salisbury is a small, generally peaceful cathedral city. 
Violent crime is a rare event. A gruesome murder like this, utterly unheard of. It's certainly not something Sergeant Golding has experienced before. He's not trained in forensic evidence gathering or preserving a crime scene, although he knows not to touch the knife directly with his fingers. There have already been a number of people traipsing in and out of the house, and Golding continues to allow visitors in. The fashion at the time is for women to wear their skirts long so that they trail along the ground. They could easily have smeared, erased, or spread vital evidence such as blood spots. At least five people have been up to the bedroom where Teddy was found. Walter Steer, Mrs. Butt, another neighbour called Thomas Rawlins, and two doctors who were on the scene minutes after the alarm was raised, Dr. Wilkes and Dr. Rowe. This was all happening at night by the light of low-powered oil lamps or gas lighting. Without realising it, the doctors may have transferred blood from the boy's body to other parts of the house. Steer assisted them by carrying a bucket of water up to the bedroom for them to wash their hands. He then carried the bloody water back downstairs and out through the kitchen to the scullery. Although he says he didn't spill any, he may have done so without knowing. The doctors are not police surgeons. Wilkes is the local GP, Teddy's doctor, and Roe is a friend who happened to be visiting. This may explain a frankly incredible blunder which they are responsible for. They remove all the bloody sheets from the bed and place them on the floor. They also wash Teddy's body and cover the wound with a handkerchief so that his mother can view him. Although the doctors try as best they can to put everything back in place afterwards, the fact that they tampered with the crime scene will not help the investigation. Shaken by the seriousness of the crime, Sergeant Golding goes to a nearby shop to use the telephone. He calls the Chief Constable of Salisbury, Frank Richardson, notifying him of the dreadful incident at 40 Meadow Road. Richardson takes personal control of the case and is on the scene by about 5 to 11, together with Superintendent Thomas Stevens. Flora is still extremely distressed when Richardson speaks to her, but she reveals two new pieces of information. First, Flora tells him about a man who came to the house the night before, asking for a room to let. When Flora told the man that she didn't take lodgers, he seemed annoyed as he claimed that someone had recommended her. Flora can't say for sure that the man she saw coming downstairs was the same individual she spoke to the night before, but it's a possibility. The other thing Flora tells the Chief Constable is that there is some money in the chest of drawers in Teddy's bedroom. Teddy has been saving up for a prosthetic leg to be fitted once he stops growing. Most of the money has come from his grandmother, but the neighbours have also chipped in. Teddy lost his leg to skeletal tuberculosis, and apart from the impact it had on his mobility, this still gave him trouble, as the wound from the amputation has never properly healed, and probably never would. Richardson goes into the bedroom, where he finds three pounds and ten shillings inside a drawer. It looks as if the drawer has been forced, as the flimsy lock is lying broken in the bottom. Flora will later tell Sergeant Golding that there should have been eight pounds and two shillings in the drawer, 
more than a month's wages for the average labourer. Over four pounds are missing from Teddy's savings. Could the missing money be a motive for the attack? Did Teddy wake up and disturb a burglar who then killed him to silence him? But if so, why didn't the thief take all the money? Also, Teddy is a disabled 12-year-old boy lying down in bed. Although the thief may not have known about his disability, Teddy is obviously not a physical threat and he wasn't blocking his way out. If the motive was theft, it would have been far more practical for the burglar just to make a run for it. Cutting the boy's throat doesn't make sense. The violence is excessive compared to the reward. Perhaps Dr. Wilkes was right when he confided to his friend Roe that whoever did this must be a maniac. There's another problem with Flora's version of events. Chief Constable Richardson asks her to check the knives in her kitchen. She discovers there's one missing. When she's later shown the knife that Sergeant Golding retrieved, she confirms that it's the missing one. If Teddy's murderer really is a stranger, how did he come to kill the boy with Flora's own knife? That said, Teddy could have taken the knife to his room himself. He may have been using it to make a wooden toy that he was working on, in which case the man just grabbed it because it was near at hand. Teddy's room would not have been in complete darkness. Flora says that she left a nightlight on, a brass lamp that was placed on his chest of drawers. But the light would have been turned down very low, arguably not bright enough for a person unfamiliar with the room to find the knife, which, in any case, they could not have known was there. It's also worth noting that by the time Walter Steer and Mrs. Butt enter Teddy's room, that same lamp is outside the bedroom on the floor of the landing. It's also cold, as if it went out or was put out sometime earlier. No traces of blood are found on the lamp. Who moved it? Who put it out? There's one other puzzling detail noticed by the first witnesses on the scene. Apart from the blood-soaked bedding, Teddy's room was in perfect order. There was no sign of it having been ransacked by a burglar. As Richardson tries to make sense of this awful tragedy, he can't help feeling that nothing quite adds up. The chief constable's attention is drawn to spots of blood on Flora's blouse, particularly on the right sleeve. The blood is most concentrated lower down at the cuff. Flora says the blood got there when the knife was thrown towards her as the attacker escaped. The blouse is taken away for analysis by experts. Sometime later, Flora will also hand over the black skirt she wore that night, although no bloodstains are visible on it, or at least not to the naked eye. Finally, at around 11.30pm, Flora is taken up to see Teddy for the first time since his death. With her is her mother, Mary Carter. At last, her tears subside. She bows down and gently kisses her son's forehead. A major manhunt is now underway. All off-duty police officers are called in. Neighbours volunteer to help, armed with lanterns and makeshift weapons. They look down every alleyway and back streets, casting their torch beams into gardens and wasteland. The search continues through the night, 
and spreads out far beyond the city centre into the surrounding fields and water meadows. Constables on bicycles are sent out in all directions to close the exits to the city. An officer is dispatched to Salisbury Railway Station to watch for a man answering the description Flora gave. The task facing Chief Constable Richardson is daunting, the pressure of the case overwhelming. Late that night, he sends a telegram to Scotland Yard. Boy murdered, money stolen, send experienced officers at once by motor. Meanwhile, inside the house, Sergeant Golding remains on duty throughout the night. He has clear instructions not to allow anyone upstairs. Flora has been given a sedative by Dr. Wilkes, and a mattress is placed on the floor in the downstairs front room for her to sleep on. She refuses to leave the house to stay with friends, as she doesn't want to leave Teddy on his own. At around six the next morning, Flora's mother asks Sergeant Golding if she can clean the floor downstairs. She just wants to do something practical to help Flora, especially after all these people coming in the house and messing up the linoleum with their dirty shoes. Unbelievably, Golding agrees. It's an even more damaging blunder than the one made by the doctors earlier. Mrs. Carter sweeps the floor and then gets down on her hands and knees to wash it with water. It's impossible to say what evidence is removed. When Golding's superiors find out what is allowed to happen, they're aghast. But Golding protests that he was only told not to let anyone upstairs. No one said anything about the downstairs. You might think some things don't need saying. But in Salisbury, in 1908, they clearly did. As dawn breaks, the exhausted search parties congregate in Meadow Road. The men shake their heads despondently. The mysterious stranger, or anyone resembling him, has not been found. You tell yourself it's only a movie. None of this could ever happen to you. You feel relieved until you discover what you're watching is based on actual events. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa and Greg from the Spotify original from ParCast, Serial Killers. In our Halloween special, Real Horror, we're spotlighting three of the most iconic horror films of all time and telling the terrifying true stories that inspired them. Recovering the real influences behind characters like Ghostface from the 90s mega-hit Scream, Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill from the Oscar-winning thriller The Silence of the Lambs, and Leatherface from the 70s cult classic The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Enjoy Real Horror, the serial killer's three-part Halloween special. Listen to all three episodes the final week of October, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It's clear that so far, everyone who has heard Flora Haskell's account of what happened that night believes it. But it isn't long before certain discrepancies emerge between her account of what happened 
and the statements of other witnesses. Perhaps people push these niggles to the back of their mind, because the alternative is unthinkable. That a devoted mother slashed the throat of her disabled son and murdered him as he lay sleeping, and for no reason. On Sunday morning, the 1st of November, a man arrives in Salisbury who is prepared to think the unthinkable. He's also prepared to ask the questions that no one else dares. Questions like, how did the blood get on Flora's blouse? And why is there so much of it on her right sleeve? Why did she not go to check on her son immediately after she saw a strange man come down? And why did so many witnesses report hearing her cry out, someone has murdered my teddy, before she had been upstairs to confirm that he was indeed dead? That man is Chief Inspector Walter Dew of Scotland Yard CID. A photograph of Dew taken around this time shows his wily expression as he confers with a uniformed officer. Cigarette in hand, he appears sharp-eyed, alert, almost amused as he gazes thoughtfully into the distance. With his drooping moustache, bowler hat and bow tie, he looks every inch a typical Edwardian Englishman. At 45 years old, Chief Inspector Dew is coming to the end of a distinguished career with the Metropolitan Police. Just two years from now, Dew will solve his final case, capturing the notorious murderer, Dr. Crippen, a grisly crime we covered on this very show. At the start of his career, he was involved in another high-profile case, when he was a junior member of the team trying to track down the elusive serial killer known as Jack the Ripper. Those murders were famously unsolved, and Jack the Ripper never caught. It is an isolated failure and an otherwise faultless track record as an investigator. By the time he retires in 1910, Jew will have received over a hundred commendations for his detective work, without a single complaint lodged against him. He boasts that he has never lost a case. It's a bold claim, but no one challenges it. To lead a difficult murder investigation, you have to be confident. You have to trust your instincts and inspire trust in others. Perhaps Jew has grown a little arrogant over the years. Then again, he's dealt with all kinds of criminals, from jewel thieves to gangsters, and got the better of them all. But as he approaches this case, is Dew overconfident? Does his arrogance cloud his judgment? One thing is certain. It doesn't take him long to decide who he believes is responsible for Teddy Haskell's murder. On Sunday morning, after being briefed by Chief Constable Richardson at Endless Street Station, Dew is driven round to 40 Meadow Road to examine the crime scene. He takes a statement from Flora and speaks to other witnesses, including Walter Steer and Flora's 16-year-old nephew, Percy Noble, who lives next door at number 38. Percy was a great friend of Teddy's and had called round at the Haskells on the night of the murder at around 10.25 to 10.30 p.m., a crucial moment in the timeline, as his statement reveals. Percy had come to pay back a shilling he had borrowed from his aunt earlier in the day. He went to the back door and tried the latch, expecting it to be left open, as it often was. When he discovered the door was locked, 
he knocked against it with his knee. In reply, he heard his aunt call out in a normal, calm voice, All right. He then heard a chair scrape against the floor, followed by a thump, like a foot landing heavily. A few seconds later, his distraught aunt opened the door. She was screaming in terror, her hair in disarray. According to Percy, she cried out, Go and see if you can see that man. He's killed my poor Teddy. Percy sprinted off into York Street, through the alley that runs along the back of the houses on that side of Meadow Road. Just like Walter Steer and other witnesses who were in the street at the time, he didn't see anyone running away, and so is unable to corroborate Flora's accounts of an intruder. The obvious question is, how did Flora know that the man had killed Teddy when she had not yet seen her son's body? Flora claims that what she actually said to Percy was, rush Percy for someone. And when he asked where he should go, she replied, go for the doctor. Even so, she still hadn't checked on Teddy. So how does she know he needs a doctor? Flora's answer is that she saw the flecks of blood on her blouse caused by the man throwing the bloody knife towards her and feared the worst. But Dew is suspicious. She says it was too dark to get a good look at the man, and yet she was able to see the spots of blood on her sleeve. Even if what she says is true, as a mother, wouldn't her first instinct be to go upstairs and check on her son? As we've heard, it's a whole hour before she finally goes in to see Teddy. Instead, Flora rushes to the back door and sends her 16-year-old nephew chasing after a man she believes to be dangerous. Of course, she's in shock, panicking. It's fair to say she's not thinking straight. None of us know what we would do in such circumstances. But it's Jew's job to think the worst of everyone. If she was afraid of what she might see upstairs, why didn't she ask Percy to go up for her? Maybe Teddy was just hurt and not dead. The priority would be to find out the extent of his injuries and get help. Dew's also not convinced that the blood flecks on her blouse came from the knife as it was thrown towards her. Dew tries to picture the moment. The way he sees it, if there was any spray from the knife, it would have been in the wake of the knife's trajectory. That is to say, away from Flora, not towards her. It is now that the seriousness of Sergeant Golding's error in allowing Flora's mother to clean the floor downstairs really hits home. As Dew is unable to find any telltale blood spatter in the passage where the knife was allegedly thrown. All he can do is review the police reports and witness statements from the previous night. According to the evidence he has, the only bloodstain discovered on the floor in the hallway was a single mark about four inches long beneath the blade and exactly in line with it. To Dew's eye, this is more consistent with the knife being placed on the floor rather than thrown or dropped. This mark was found in the doorway leading to the kitchen. Although blood was found on the landing upstairs, no one reports seeing any blood between the bottom of the stairs and the front door, nor on the front door itself. Dew consults the police surgeon, Dr. Gilbert Kemp, who examined the crime scene, as well as Flora's blouse and dress, 
on which he found further bloodstains. Is Kemp's opinion that the patterns of blood on Flora's clothing matched those on the wall and chest of drawers in Teddy's bedroom. In other words, they are consistent with blood spraying out from the boy's windpipe when it was cut. The opinion will later be corroborated by Professor Augustus Pepper, the Home Office pathologist brought in to provide expert forensic advice. The experts confirmed Dew's own view, which he sets out in a report to the Director of Public Prosecutions filed on the 3rd of November. To my mind, the position of the bloodstains on the blouse are consistent with her having cut the boy's throat and not consistent as being caused in the manner described by her. Sometime on Sunday, November the 1st, a well-known local bloodhound breeder called Mr. Oliphant arrives in Fisherton with a number of his dogs, offering to help find a man who murdered Teddy Haskell. His services are politely declined, which suggests that even by now the police already know where to look for the murderer, and it's not in the streets of Salisbury or the surrounding countryside. They focus their investigations in and around Forty Meadow Road, continuing to speak to witnesses to build up a theory of what may have happened. Dew keeps up the pressure on Flora, taking a number of statements from her over the next couple of days. She mentions details she hadn't brought up before, modifying her narrative when Dew points out the inconsistencies with other witness statements. It must be said, however, that throughout it all, Flora fiercely maintains her innocence. Dew questions her about a handkerchief that she was seen to take from her pocket on the night of the 31st. She gave the handkerchief to one of the women who was there, who noticed that there was blood on it and that it was wet. Flora explains that Teddy had cut his ear at school earlier in the week. The scab had come off and the wound had started to bleed again. She had used the handkerchief to staunch the bleeding. But Dew wonders if a more plausible explanation is that the handkerchief was wet and bloody because she had used it to clean her hands after slashing her son's throat. Two other bloody handkerchiefs are also found at the house. That said, the story of Teddy hurting himself at school checks out. On Tuesday, November the 3rd, three days after the murder, the coroner's inquest into Teddy's death begins in a wood-panelled courtroom in Salisbury's 18th century Guildhall. The jury of respectable local businessmen is taken off to view Teddy's body, which is still at Meadow Road. Flora's mother, Mary Carter, is called as a witness solely to confirm the identity of the body. The inquest is then adjourned until the 11th at Chief Constable Richardson's request. Later that same day, at about 10.30pm, Chief Constable Richardson, Superintendent Stevens and Chief Inspector Dew drive to Flora Haskell's house in Meadow Road. Dew watches Flora's face closely. He's never been afraid to look directly into the eyes of those he suspects of even the most horrendous crimes. He sees her flinch as Richardson charges her with the murder of her son, Edwin Haskell, on October the 31st. Richardson cautions her that anything she says may be taken down and used in evidence. Flora cries out only, no, no. 
the chief constable duly notes it down. She's taken away to spend her first night in a police cell. The following morning, Flora is called to appear before magistrates. She is escorted into the courtroom by a female warder and Sergeant Golding, now wearing plain clothes. They have to hold her up by the arms as she's barely able to walk. The Salisbury Times describes her as a woman of slight build and medium height with a gentle, pleasant face, though terribly worn and wan. Looking as if she's about to faint at any moment, she's brought forward to the bar as the magistrate's clerk reads out the charge against her. Flora Fanny Haskell, you are charged with that you did feloniously and of your malice aforethought, kill and murder Edwin Richard Haskell, aged 12, at 40 Meadow Road on Saturday the 31st of October by cutting his throat. As with the coroner's inquest, the hearing is adjourned. The reason for the adjournments is to allow the police to put together the case against Flora. They rely heavily on the testimony of police surgeon Dr. Kemp and the home office expert Professor Pepper, particularly with regard to the blood spatter on her clothes. The evidence is largely circumstantial and Dew is unable to provide a convincing motive for the murder, which will remain a major weakness in the case. In the coroner's inquest, the jury is asked four specific questions. When and how did Teddy Haskell die? What was the cause of his death? Was he murdered? And the fourth question, can you say who committed the crime? The first three questions are easy enough, and the jury is unanimous in deciding that Teddy died from hemorrhaging after his throat was cut. Clearly he was murdered. The fourth question is more divisive. After a long and tortuous deliberation, the foreman of the jury reads out the following statement. In answer to your fourth question, we find Mrs. Haskell committed the murder. He then adds an unsolicited qualification. But from the nature of the woman, we are convinced that the crime must have been committed during a moment of temporary insanity. The coroner's verdict makes the outcome of the magistrate's hearing a foregone conclusion. Flora is committed for trial at the Winter Assizes. From her cell, Flora writes a letter to her own mother in which she says, There is one over all before whom I can say I have a clear conscience. For you and everyone knew I loved my precious little Teddy with a love only a mother could do. Flora Haskell's trial begins on February the 15th, 1909, in Devizes. The public gallery is crowded, and many spectators have to be turned away. Understandably, Flora appears more composed than she did during the hearings in November. Her legal team have now had a chance to put together a defense, which is apparently strong enough to give her confidence. She answers the clerk of the court in a firm, clear voice. I plead not guilty, my lord. Witness after witness is called to help each side construct their version of the events surrounding Teddy's death. But one witness who is not called to the stand is Flora Haskell. The jury will never hear directly from her lips her accounts of what happened that night. For the prosecution, 
J. Alderson Foote, KC, draws attention to the fact that Flora was heard to cry out that Teddy had been murdered before she could have any way of knowing this, according to the testimony of witnesses such as Walter Steer and his wife, Alice. But the core of the prosecution's case is the forensic evidence as presented by the medical experts Dr. Kemp and Professor Pepper. Their findings are broadly supported by the first doctors to examine the body, Dr. Wilkes and Dr. Rowe. However, there is some disagreement between the four doctors about where the assailant must have been standing when the fatal wound was administered. Defending Flora is the brilliant young barrister Rainer Goddard, as the Salisbury Times describes him. Goddard latches onto the differences in the medical experts' opinions to undermine the whole foundation of the case against his client. He criticizes the forensic evidence as not just circumstantial, but theoretical. Theories that, even when put forward by eminent scientists such as Professor Pepper, may well turn out to be wrong. He reminds the jury that to convict, they must be certain, beyond all reasonable doubts, that Flora is guilty. And theories are always open to doubt. Goddard also points out that no motive for the crime has been put forward by the prosecution. And it's true. The question of why Flora might have killed her son is never answered. The prosecution tries to present Flora as poverty-stricken, perhaps hinting at a financial motive for the crime. Although it's never explicitly asked, the question is left hanging. Did she take Teddy's money herself? But Goddard argues that in fact she made a decent living as a laundress and had always managed to look after herself and Teddy ever since her husband's death four years ago. Goddard repeatedly asks witnesses about Flora's relationship with her son. Walter Steer's answer is typical. Mrs. Haskell is everything a mother ought to be. The final witness at the trial is perhaps the most sensational. Matilda Shepherd is a police matron, that is to say, the wife of a police officer who lives at the station house and is called in to deal with female prisoners. Mrs. Shepherd claims that on the 5th of December 1908, Flora had said to her, Oh, Mrs. Shepherd, if I did it, I don't remember it. It was the closest she would come to a confession. After the closing speeches, the jury retire to consider their verdict at 1.55pm on Wednesday the 17th of February. A little over three hours later, they return to the courtroom. In answer to the question, gentlemen, have you agreed upon a verdict? The foreman answers simply, no. The jury of 12 men is split. 11 are persuaded of Flora Haskell's guilt. One is not. In a capital charge, the verdict must be unanimous. The jury is discharged, and a new trial was set for the 1st of April. The second trial is in many ways a rerun of the first, before a new jury, although this time the prosecution addresses the question of motive. Foote now argues, The evidence is sufficient to bring home the fact that in some unaccountable frenzy, or in some morbid state of mind, possibly brooding over the child's unhappy condition, this unfortunate woman did upon this night commit the act with which she is charged. 
In other words, it was a mercy killing. But the jury is unconvinced. This time the verdict is unanimously in Flora's favour. She is found not guilty on the grounds of insufficient evidence and released. However, because of the coroner's inquest, to this day, Teddy's death certificate names his mother, Flora Haskell, as his murderer. For Chief Inspector Dew, the detective who has famously never lost a case, the result is disappointing. But such is the nature of criminal trials. Unless you have an eyewitness to the crime itself, or a confession from the perpetrator, all you can do is gather the evidence and lay it out before a jury. The circumstantial nature of much of the evidence meant that it was always open to interpretation. Dew marshalled his expert witnesses, and the defence did their best to undermine them. The case wasn't helped by Sergeant Golding's decision to allow Mrs. Carter to mop the floor at the bottom of the stairs. Arguably, this may have damaged Flora's defence, too, because if there were any bloodstains between the stairs and the front door, which would have backed up her story, they were washed away. In Dew's final report to the Director of Public Prosecutions, made after Flora's acquittal, he remains convinced of her guilt. I was of the opinion that she was a cool, calculating woman, that she went through her usual performance of shopping on the Saturday, and that after the boy was asleep, she went upstairs and cut his throat. His superior, Superintendent Frost, writes in the margin of Dew's report, it is more than surprising that the jury should have acquitted this woman. But is it possible that, for once, Dew is wrong? Could there have been an intruder in Forty Meadow Road that night who snuck up to Teddy's bedroom and killed him? In one of her statements, Flora mentions a strange man who she claims gave Teddy sixpence and asked him to write down his name and address. Could this man be Teddy's murderer? Unfortunately, we will never know. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential. It's December 1915, when the First World War has been raging for six months. In Highgate, London, tragedy strikes as a bride dies in the bath on her honeymoon. But when the story is reported in the national press, reports of similar deaths come to light. Accidents and coincidence, or if Scotland Yard got a serial killer on their hands. Find out next week. Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Buaro for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Written by Sarah Moorhead. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Matthias Torres-Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Kian Ryan Morgan. Music by Oliver Bain and Dory McCauley.